Hey, you listen to podcasts. Can I assume you like audiobooks as well? And if so, can I please hope you're not a member of Audible.com yet? I've been a member for over 10 years, and now I've joined their affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial and support Bionic Planet by going to audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Bionic Planet is one word with no dots, dashes, or spaces because the system doesn't seem to accept those. And you can support me by signing up and checking out their services. It might even work if you're a member. I don't think it does, but give it a try. They've got over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Have you ever heard of a company called Marfrig Global Foods? How about JBS? Hint, JBS is named after José Batista Sabrino, a Brazilian rancher who's something like the Oscar Mayer of Brazil. Oh, I'd love to be an Oscar Mayer wiener. Only much, much bigger. Yes, JBS and Marfrig are two of the world's largest meat packers. And you'll find their products in Walmart and McDonald's in the United States, Marks and Spencer in the United Kingdom, Albert Hein in the Netherlands, pretty much everywhere you buy meat, but usually with some other company's name on them. Both companies grew at the expense of the Amazon biome, which farmers have been chopping for decades to grow soy and graze cattle. That started in the 1950s, And it accelerated until about 10 years ago, when consumer-facing companies like the ones I just mentioned started getting pressure from their customers, thanks to environmental groups like Greenpeace and others. That led to something called the Cattle Agreements, which are a set of voluntary commitments to stop buying from any farms that either chop forests to graze cattle, use slave labor, or graze on indigenous or protected lands. The cattle agreements came three years after grain companies like Cargill and Louis Dreyfus agreed to a similar moratorium on soy products from the Amazon. More recently, something like that started happening in Indonesia as well. There, companies like Wilmar and Asia Pulp and Paper started changing the way they buy their pulp, paper, and palm, often in cooperation with competitors. All of these initiatives have two things in common. They involve the big four commodities— that drive most of the world's deforestation, namely cattle and soy in Brazil and palm and pulp and paper in Indonesia. And they're largely led by the private sector, usually in response to NGO pressure and only rarely in coordination with government agencies. But what about the governments? After all, both Indonesia and Brazil have created detailed climate action plans, and both of those efforts involve saving forests. That matters because deforestation generates between 15 and 20 percent of the greenhouse gases that man is responsible for emitting. And these two countries account for about 40 percent of the world's deforestation, according to a new report called Collaboration Towards Zero Deforestation, Aligning Corporate and National Commitments in Brazil and Indonesia. The report looks at the ways government and the private sector are and are not cooperating to reduce greenhouse gases from deforestation. 
published jointly by Forest Trends and the Environmental Defense Fund, it identifies more than a dozen initiatives, some led by NGOs or the private sector, others led by governmental agencies, and most existing in their own silos instead of working together in unison. Today's guests, the authors of that report, Brian Scopp of Forest Trends and Brianna Luhan of EDF. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth and your guide to the restoration economy. Nowhere is man's impact on Earth more deeply felt than in Brazil and Indonesia, two countries that, geographically, have nothing in common. After all, one is a solid landmass covering half a continent, while the other is a land of a thousand islands, or technically, closer to 15,000 islands scattered across the sea. Brazil has four times more land than Indonesia does, but each country spreads out over about 3 million square miles, and Indonesia's peat soils emit massive amounts of methane and carbon when poorly managed. That means they're about the same on the greenhouse gas emission front, and they also face similar challenges, namely poor demarcation of land, powerful and often corrupt agriculture sectors, and a growing middle class. My name is Brianna Luhan, and I am the policy analyst for the Global Climate Team at EDF, or the Environmental Defense Fund. And I've been working on this report with... Brian Scott with Forest Trends. Forest Trends is a D.C.-based environmental NGO that does a lot of research and writing about ecosystem markets, especially trying to um, identify ways that finance can better support conservation. What we're looking at are these two countries, Brazil and Indonesia, and then we're looking at what the governments are doing and then what companies are doing and why they're not connecting. First question, big one, why these two countries in particular? Yeah, so uh, Brazil and Indonesia in many ways are the most important tropical forest countries globally. They hold the largest area of tropical forest together. So the fate of the world's forests really depend to a large extent on what these two countries do. And just a stat, in 2014, Brazil and Indonesia collectively accounted for 38% of tropical deforestation. Which is a huge yeah. portion. Yeah, so almost four-tenths of the whole world's deforestation were in those two countries. And as you mentioned, the commodity agriculture is a huge force uh, for deforestation in each country. So because we wanted to look at what private sector companies were doing uh, related to addressing deforestation, these two countries also made sense because uh, beef and soy in Brazil are huge drivers of deforestation, and in Indonesia it's uh, palm oil and pulp and paper. Both countries have these national climate action plans, 
which again, are technically they're called Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. Does one of you want to explain what an NDC is? Sure. It's basically um, countries that were signed on to the Paris Agreement, known as parties, submitted these official climate action plans. So basically, they are the country's intentions to combat climate change or address climate change, and they encapsulate different things, right? So we focus specifically on the portions of the NDCs, or nationally determined contributions, that touched on um, the land sector and um, the forestry sector. Mm-hmm. And it's a really wonky term, um, but it's just, it's sort of part of the parlance of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that was the term that was decided by all the global negotiators. Um, but it basically just means national commitments to act on climate change. Yeah. And what I find interesting about the Paris Agreement, just to reiterate this, is it, the NDCs are the core of that because in the past, if you looked at the Kyoto Protocol, we had top-down, one-size-fits-all, global target, no way of getting there. Now we, with, under the Paris Agreement, we've got a global agreement on how to measure all the wonky stuff, and then we say, as far as what each country is going to do, voluntarily come up with an NDC, but then once you make an NDC, once you make that, it, it does become a binding commitment. And the binding portion of the agreement is that each country has to is required to submit um, official records of their emissions and to be transparent with what's happening um, in their own country in terms of emissions. Whether or not the actual reductions they've committed to are binding is sort of dependent on domestic legislation in each country. For this report, we took the most recent version of the NDCs submitted for Paris, but because this is a bottom-up world, we expect these to change in years ahead and hopefully become more ambitious. And another key thing that you guys pointed out is that 80% of the NDCs have something to do with deforestation, right? Right. So deforestation or the land use sector more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we detailed throughout the report, I think there are several tables detailed to what specific portions we focused on in each NDC for each specific country. So that way it was uh, kind of easier to compare like the corporate commitments with specific portions of the NDC. For now, why don't we just do a quick comparison between the two NDCs that we're talking about. Brazil has committed, what they've said is that by 2025, their emissions will be 37% lower than they were in 2005, and then they'll be 43% lower by 2030. Correct. Okay. Indonesia says that by 2020, their emissions will be below a business-as-usual scenario. We'll probably have to explain what that is, um, because emissions can still rise, but below be lower than what they would be. Yeah, so it's 26% by 2020, 29% by 2030, and then they added an extra 12% if they get sufficient funding from international donors and technical assistance, capacity building, that sort of thing. Right, right. Who wants to, maybe you, you did Indonesia, right, Brianna? Uh, Brazil. Oh, you did Brazil. Yes. So you didn't, maybe you could explain what this uh, business as usual scenario is. Yeah, so one of the complicated aspects of the way the Paris Agreement was worked out is bottom-up nature allows for a lot of freedom in how countries structured their commitments. So some countries made commitments which compare against uh, historic baselines or reference levels. So the U.S., for instance, has committed to a target that references previous year's emissions. Indonesia, partly because it's a developing economy, um, and everyone understands it is expected to grow um, in the coming years, instead of picking a historical baseline, it picked a forward-looking expectation of what they think their economy would grow to be and their emissions would grow to be in the absence of any specific interventions uh, to reduce emissions. That's what they mean by business as usual. And maybe we'll come back to you, Brianna, to talk about what constitutes international support, what they mean by that in Brazil. 
Yeah, so that's a good question. I think international support can come in several forms. They don't really specify, which is one of the, I guess, comments, we'll call it, about the NDC. So there's a section in the report that details basically implications for the private sector um, with regard to the NDC. And so one of the comments related back to funding, and it's like, okay, well, what does funding constitute? Who's doing the funding? So again, there's a lot of ambiguity regarding that. And I think that was kind of the point because they didn't want to restrict any potential sources. Let me move on now just to introduce the company side of this quickly. You drew on the supply chain research and shows that about 500 companies have formally committed to change the way they get the big four commodities, the, the ones that are responsible for most deforestation, and that's palm oil, soy, timber and pulp, and cattle. Who wants to take a stab at describing what these commitments look like? Yeah, I'm happy to take that on. So most of these commitments are companies coming out and publicly saying, mostly in response to consumer pressure, which has been growing over the years, these companies are now committing to ensure that the production of their products are more environmentally sustainable than they may have been in the past. So in relation to these commodities, particularly because they're tied to deforestation, many of these commitments are the companies saying that they're going, they have specific targets for uh, reducing deforestation in their supply chains, in many cases year over year going forward. Um, there's Many of the commitments also include human, human rights strengthening, um, avoiding forced labor. So in Indonesia, what there's sort of a catch-all term um, for these commitments, and it's uh, no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation. So it, it, en- it encompasses the environment, but also social aspects. And a lot of um, com- commitments relate to certification um, processes, um, and then also like supply chain traceability and things like that. So I guess they generally revolve around either reducing deforestation in their supply chains or working towards completely eliminating it. Can you just elaborate on what we mean by traceability and why it matters? Sure. So a lot of these products um, come from direct suppliers, theoretically, but there are also a lot of indirect suppliers involved in the process, and that can present opportunities for like leakages and things like that. So meaning if if you have a jurisdiction, we'll call it jurisdiction A, and there are a certain number of producers and suppliers in that area, and they're all legally verified, legally certified, and they are sourcing from these other indirect suppliers who may necessarily not be in that certification um, scheme. So... Right, like an indirect supplier, meaning maybe a, uh, a slaughterhouse or something Correct. like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something that was also a big epiphany for me was learning how complex these supply chains are. Right. You know, you have the little farmers, and then they sell to some local guy who then sells it to someone else. Right, and there's huge variability. On the one hand, the, some of the really large um, farms and producers, it's pretty simple supply chains. But in many instances in these countries, um, you have smallholders that are very diffuse, and the supply chain has numerous steps um, before it makes it to a final end consumer in the U.S. or Europe. And it's really difficult to trace it back all the way. First to only know where it's coming from, but then to actually affect change across the whole scale is really difficult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You talked about these multi-stakeholder collaborations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the way we use that term in the report is really to highlight that the, the space where the government action and uh, private sector company action are coming together. Mm-hmm. They include government officials as well as uh, private sector company representatives, Um, local NGOs, representatives of community organizations, and um, they're they're kind of new structures to um, allow collaboration between all these groups to meet goals of reduced deforestation that each group has on their own, but they haven't really found a way to partner together effectively. Is there any one of these organizations you might want to 
just just to flesh it out a bit, tell us which one. Yeah, sure. So um, in the Brazil section, we referenced the Brazilian Coalition on Climate, Forests, and Agriculture a lot. Um, and that is an, the epitome of a multi-stakeholder platform, we'll call it. It consists of 131 NGO and private sector members, including companies such as like Cargill and Carrefour, which are huge in Brazil. And basically, it was created to initially to provide a platform for these bodies to come together and basically just talk about what they their expectations were for the NDC because at this time the NDC hadn't been implemented yet. And so it was just a really great space for all of these different um, members to come together and exchange ideas. Through our interviews, we found that it was pretty effective at providing that venue. Yeah, and, uh, and earlier this year, the supply chain guys took a look at companies, these 500 companies or so that have made commitments on deforestation, and they found that those that join these multilateral organizations are better at disclosing progress towards their commitments, even if they're not actually keeping their commitments yet, they're at least reporting the progress they're making or not making. Yeah, and one analogous institution in Indonesia um, would be the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. So that's a group of um, all sorts of different stakeholders coming together to try to set standards for what an acceptable sustainability metric would be for palm oil production. Both of those organizations are really interesting, and, and I think we hopefully we'll have time to go into them in a little more detail. One other thing before we move on, it's something you alluded to already, was that in the when you look you looked at these four commodities, but you looked at uh, beef and soy in Brazil, and then you looked at palm oil and wood products in Indonesia. That's the, those the specific breakdown. Is that I assume that's just because the that's just the yeah. In each country, those two commodities um, are the major driver of deforestation. So um, Indonesia is a huge global producer of palm oil and um, pulp and paper products, and Brazil's you know the leading global producer of beef and soy. So we just pick those based upon the fact that they are the most important commodities in those in those countries. Mm-hmm. You know, intuitively, when we talk about having the private sector and the public sector work together, it makes sense that they should work together. But can you quickly tell us what you think the most impactful areas of cooperation can be, and are they the same in both countries? I think it's important to recognize that each constituency has a different role and capacity to solve this problem. So governments are responsible for setting the policy environment um, and the laws and the regulations and enforcing those to govern you know, the country's forests responsibly. Corporations, on the other hand, are responsible for acting under those regulations in ways that um, they feel good about reporting to their shareholders and their customers. They have complementary roles if, if they each kind of partner together to, to do their part. Um, and that's what we were trying to p- point out in the report is how can governments grab hold of their opportunity to make and enforce regulations and how can corporations support the, that process, but also then act responsibly within those those laws. So essentially just how they can complement each other and mm-hmm. finding those spaces and exploring those through the yeah. case studies and providing recommendations. Right. So you've got these these multilateral uh, groups where the companies are, I don't even want to call them good companies, but they're certainly responding to yeah. consumer pressure. And then you've got uh, within Brazil, I know at least the, the farmer, what do they call the farmers? The agriculture sector has been a pretty bad actor in a lot of a lot of this, right? And they're yeah. helping to write the laws and they're running things now, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, if you want to get in con- into contemporary Brazilian politics, we can, but I don't think it's it's mm-hmm. specific to this administration. But yeah, so the agricultural sector and the ranching sector have been known to have a lot of clout in these decisions, which is part of the reason why we're, you know, working on these things to try to bring transparency to what's happening. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, and I should say we, we took a pretty... Um, a positive perspective on what corporation the role corporations could play in these countries, but that's not to 
um, shine a rosy light on all their actions or to say that because we didn't highlight some of the maybe corporate abuses that are going on that they don't exist. Right. And then I think we did a pretty good job of, of commenting at least on the current state of these different initiatives. Um, so I know if the Brazil section does, and I'm pretty sure the Indonesian section does as well, but just highlighting A, their successes and B, things that they could improve on. Mm-hmm, so to mm-hmm. kind of present that balanced view. One other interesting thing that I've always noticed a little bit over the years is how how similar the problems are that they both face. I mean, and, you know, Brazil had this rapid push to colonize the Amazon in the 60s. Indonesia had this mess after they kicked out the Dutch, after your forefathers, um, I and mean, was it 1947 or whatever? Um, but the result is a mess in terms of they don't, they don't, not knowing who owns the land, the whole demarcation issue. And it really struck me how, in this report, how similar the challenges are. I wonder if you wanted to maybe do a little compare and contrast on how similar they are and then maybe how they diverge. Yeah, so um, Indonesia's politics, as you sort of alluded to, Steve, are very decentralized. And I don't, I'm not an expert on the political history of Indonesia, but following the, the fall of the Suharto regime, the country as a political strategy basically decentralized a lot of power to the, the sub-provincial, what you could call districts, and there's like 400 or something of them across the country. So this is a ton of small political jurisdictions that have a lot of power, especially around land use decisions. Partly because of that, the administrative uh, regime in Indonesia is very complicated. Uh, the maps that different government agencies have don't always match up. Um, so the country's trying to, to pursue this one map initiative to just make sure that there's a baseline set of boundaries and land use classifications that everybody can agree on. Just to clarify that, different authorities within the government have different maps. Like, and it might be that the Forestry Commission may have given a concession in one area where a different agency gave a different concession. You have, so you have different conflicting claims in the land. Exactly. Right. And our argument in the report is that the government needs to work better with companies on these sorts of issues. But in the case of Indonesia, the government has a lot of work to do just to even, you know, work well with itself um, in the case of the One Map Initiative. Yeah, and I think that has um, a lot to do with Brazil as well. Um, I will say that it's a bit more centralized in Brazil just because they have like an established environmental ministry. Um, but a lot of the action does come down to subnational governments. Um, so a lot of the Amazonian states are at the forefront right now of taking action on reducing deforestation. So that has been a huge help and a huge push. And a lot of the case studies we focus on are specific to Mato Grosso or Pará, um, to the Amazonian states. Um, and so and a lot does come down to kind of the communication between either the federal government and the subnational governments or subnational governments and companies, right? And so that's where we're trying to figure out how these channels can be created. And so similar to Brian's point about something so simple, but also extremely complicated as data collection. So for the cattle agreements, which I think we'll get into later, and the soy moratorium, so the government has made a concerted effort to centralize this data and make it publicly available so that different corporations and different NGOs specializing on these issues can access it and hopefully be operating under the same platforms. So looking at what you looked at, Brazil's NDC, Mm -hmm. one of the things that they said they're going to do is strengthen and enforce the forest code. Can you tell us about the forest code? I know it's had a long history. (laughs) It's... Yeah, so the Forest Code is Brazil's federal legislative attempt to reduce deforestation throughout the entire country. And so a lot of it focuses on creating areas of permanent preservation, legal reserves. So there are different classifications of these conservation areas, we'll call them. So a lot of it hinges upon the Rural Environmental Registry, so known as the CAR in Brazil, C-A-R. So you'll find that interspersed throughout the report as well. Um, And basically that is um, a mechanism to prevent illegal deforestation 
deforestation. So the idea um, forest code is to have all farmers and ranchers and everyone who owns land and operates on land to register in this registry um, so that the government can keep track of deforestation and basically measure whether or not they've complied with the, the stipulations the forest code sets out. Okay. And if I, if, if I understand it correctly, the way the code is, the basis of the code is that if you own land in the Amazon, mm-hmm. you can only deforest. You can only deforest 20% of it or something? So it depends on the biome. So in um, the Amazon biome, it's legal reserves. So those are the strictest of the land classifications. Um, have to retain 80% forest cover, 35% in the Cejado, which is another biome in the interior, um, and 20% in other areas. So again, it's biome dependent. And the, the law arguably is very depend- like context dependent, so biome dependent, we'll call it. And then going to the car, if I understand correctly, the history in the car was that uh, back into the 60s, mm-hmm. Uh, the Brazilian government was afraid that you would start to get squatters coming in from the Spanish-speaking country. So they encouraged all the mm-hmm. Portuguese-speaking people to go into the forest and chop the forest and, and settle it, and no one knew who owned what. Mm-hmm. And then now with the car, what they're trying to do, they've got satellite technology that knows, you can see where the deforestation is happening, but they don't know who owns it. So right. now that's what the car is, is right. you have to get registered. To kind of just document what's going on on the ground, right? And so when you have ambiguity surrounding land rights and things like that, and that also a huge component of that is indigenous people's claims to territory, right? So I think the car is like a way of kind of sifting through all of these issues. Mm-hmm. And there's basically these incentives to get yourself registered. On the right. Car. So a lot of the programs and the initiatives that are um, in the case study is actually mentioned that they provide incentives. So one of the complaints we'll say about the car is that the um, costs to register and to go through this entire process are pretty high. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these initiatives provide incentives for farmers to participate in the car registry system and actually, in some cases, fund them. So Mm -hmm. it's a huge push. Okay. And then you've also got zero illegal deforestation in the Amazon Mm -hmm. and compensation for legal deforestation. Yeah, so basically, if if a property is registered, so the zero legal deforestation in the Amazon is pretty self-explanatory, right? So it's like the ideal would be to eliminate deforestation completely from the Amazon Mm -hmm. biome. So eliminate illegal deforestation from the Amazon. So that's like a very important nuance, right? So illegal versus legal, Mm -hmm. which gets to the second part of your question. So compensation for legal deforestation, if a property that's registered in the car can verify the amount of land that was initially forested with native vegetation or whatever the requirements were at the time, um, if they have complied with that as they said they would, then they will be compensated for that, basically awarded for following the law. I think the next one, self-explanatory, you've got restoration mm-hmm. of 12 million hectares. Uh-huh. Explain what what is what do you mean by sustainable forest management? Yeah, so that can take a variety of forms. Um, so like different agroforestry tools and things like that. So something like um, replanting native vegetation versus monoculture, right? So that would be something that's sustainable native forest management, right? Because it's they're trying to restore what was previously there um, to make it more sustainable in mm-hmm. the future. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the other one, sustainable agriculture development, which is kind of tied into that. And mm-hmm. we've we've covered agroforestry in this. I've 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 also find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. How the degree to which having trees on your farm can increase the fertility. That yeah. I didn't. I had no idea until about three years ago <laughs> that that was the case. Yeah. So like trees are great. <laughs> they uh, <laughs> sequester carbon and increase like soil nutrients. So yeah, I think well, Brazil started catching on, and other mm-hmm. countries started catching on. So they figured they'd do something about it. Mm-hmm. I mentioned at the start of today's show that I joined the Audible.com Affiliates Program, which means you can get a free audiobook download 
with a free 30-day trial if you're not already a member. If you are a member and log in through audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet, that's bionicplanet as a single word, no dots, dashes, or spaces, it may still give me credit, but I'm pretty sure you don't get a discount. Still, if you're a satisfied member, as I've been for over a decade, you're at least getting something you value. One book I've been enjoying and recommending lately is Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst by Robert Sapolsky. It pairs well with Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, because both of these books help us understand the precognitive drivers of our prejudices and moral blah-de-blah. Haidt comes at it more from a psychological angle, while Sapolsky comes at it through neuroscience. But they both end up examining the ways that evolution forged the neurological, psychological, whatever pathways that to this day make some of us quiver with anger when someone kneels instead of stands before a symbol of loyalty and the way we viscerally respond to people and situations we don't know much about. Both of these authors are teachers as well as researchers, so they both know how to tell a story, and Haidt actually narrates his. Both of them will help you identify, understand, and purge your own prejudices, and they even offer clues for helping us rescue people who we perceive to be trapped in illogical ideologies. Although you might also end up so thoroughly questioning your own beliefs that you don't know where you stand. Another audiobook I've been surprised to find myself recommending is Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened. I got it first on Kindle because I travel a lot, so that's how I get most of my books. And I realized that it was conversationally enough written for Audible, so I got it there too. Hillary narrates it herself, and she does a great job. If you've read the negative reviews as I had, you'll be shocked to read the book. It's incredibly insightful, and it's mostly about policy and how to move forward. Yeah, the last election provides an arc, but how can it not? You can get any one of these audiobooks or anything really in the audio library for free, so there is absolutely no risk at all, and you can support me at the same time by going to audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet, again, without the hyphen. That's audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet for your free audiobook. Now, you've, you also go into these three case studies. Mm-hmm. And I think in your case, you only have the three. So it's, I think we can probably go through those. The sure. trouble with, with Indonesia is you had so many of them. I'm going to let you decide which ones we're going to look yeah, at. Sounds good. Okay. So the first one, Mato Grosso's produce, produce, conserve, and include strategy. What, what is this? Produce, conserve, include, or PCI, we'll call it that for the sake of the listeners instead of repeating it all, was a strategy proposed by the governor of Mato Grosso, so Governor Takis, in 2015, so during the Paris um, Agreement negotiations. This strategy, we'll call it, aims to prevent six gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent, increase the production of agriculture and livestock on already cleared lands, reduce deforestation, and increase reforestation, and incorporate smallholders and indigenous peoples in low emissions rural development. So the basic idea is to increase agriculture and livestock production on already cleared land while reducing deforestation. She touched on an issue that comes up over and over again, 
intensification of land use. We saw it in episode 7, where Dannon was helping Kenyan farmers reduce their impact on forests by planting trees that infuse nitrogen into the soil and provide silage for cows. And I've seen it across Latin America. If you let cows graze willy-nilly, you might end up with one cow for every two acres. But if you feed them silage, you can double your productivity, meaning you can get by with one acre per cow instead of two. And speaking of productivity, I'm trying to create content here that helps you understand the global restoration economy, thereby becoming a more productive member of society. If you think I'm doing a good job, then you can help by giving me a good rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access my show. Or you can share Bionic Planet with friends or the ultimate support. Become a patron at bionic-planet.com because I depend on you to get these out. And I've set the patronage page so that you can help per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, which I rarely do, unfortunately, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode or 10 or 50 or whatever. I won't complain. And then you talk about the cattle agreements. So the cattle agreements are comprised of two different parts, we'll say. So um, in 2009, meat packers um, signed two deforestation agreements, and they are collectively known as the cattle agreements. The first were the terms of adjustment conduct, so the TAC agreements. And basically, the two-thirds of the federally inspected slaughterhouses in the legal Amazon signed on to these agreements with the federal public prosecutors in several of the Amazonian states. And their focus is on eliminating deforestation completely. So then the second portion of the cattle agreements is the G40 deforestation agreements. Um, and so a subset of those companies that signed on to the TAC, so those include JBS, Marfrig, And those Minerva, are big slaughterhouses. And Bechin, yeah. They're mm. really big slaughterhouses. So they signed on, they made an additional commitment and signed on to the G40 deforestation agreements with Greenpeace. Um, and this one prohibits all deforestation. Mm. So. Right. And this was in response to... Uh, some pretty severe criticisms Mm -hmm. coming from, I think Greenpeace had that one report called Slaughtering the Amazon, Mm -hmm. and they kind of showed that all this beef that we were buying here in the United States was coming from places where they were destroying uh, the forest. I talked to somebody, I think it was at Marfrig. The challenge they have there is that they had eliminated thousands of small suppliers, I Mm -hmm. think, because he felt that they, because they were deforesting, Mm -hmm. but... uh, they just turned around and sold to domestic buyers. So yeah. this is this works on the export. Yeah. It didn't really do anything on the import. Is there anything being done on that front? Right. So I think that that's then well, that not import. Of, I mean domestic, not import. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of relates back to our earlier point, right, about indirect versus direct suppliers, right? So it's like you have all of these players involved, and I don't know the specifics about the cattle agreement, meaning I don't know if they've made additional rules or requirements for involvement to eliminate this problem, but it is at the forefront now when we're talking about cattle supply chains and and, um, eliminating deforestation from that. Okay. And the soy moratorium Mm -hmm. is very similar to the cattle issue. Uh Uh-huh. So, um, again, a huge portion of the um, soy trade is controlled by a few companies, and those companies decided in 2006 to basically sign a voluntary zero deforestation agreement. And so the implementing group of that is the Soybean Working Group, or the GTS, uh, GTS, sorry, and that 
is a multi-stakeholder initiative. So we talked about those earlier. And so it involves a lot of NGOs, environmental ministries, and the Bank of Brazil. And so it's been really successful so far and obviously can stand to be improved in certain respects. But it's it's been um, a really great example mm-hmm. of one of these initiatives. And, and the companies involved in that, there's, they're international companies. Uh, Cargill was in there. I was really mm-hmm. surprised to see the mix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's great, right? So it's not, we're talking about like domestic problems and this is like very much international, right? So mm-hmm. you're talking about sourcing and exporting and importing. Right. So. It touches on on all the major parts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we've got we've got this government initiative, this government, this NDC. Mm-hmm. Now we've got these three private sector or NGO led initiatives. How are they connecting? How are they not connecting? And what can be improved? We try to represent this for both of the um, countries, and and one of the specific tables, so table two for those who actually let read me, the report. Let me go through it. <laughs> table two. I'm yeah, gonna, let me so, just get on that page here. Yeah. So table two um, touches on this specifically, right? So how these different initiatives are lining up with specific facets of the um, NDC. We basically line them up and then had the five focuses of the NDC that we were um, looking at. And so, for example, like the Mato Grosso PCI um, strengthens and enforces the forest code and basically mm, checks okay. off all of the all of the lists. Don't want to get into too much detail because I know Brian is eagerly awaiting to get into his Indonesia case studies. But essentially, we were really pleased to find that all the initiatives that we chose ended up addressing most, if not all, of the um, NDC aspects. Okay. I really like how you've laid this out. I, I have to admit, I, I think I skipped over this table because <laughs> you have it up front and yeah. there wasn't any context at right. that point. So then I kept reading through. Yeah. Coming back to it now, I realize, okay, I see what they did here. Yeah. You basically lined up, you've, you've got um, the themes from the NDC, mm-hmm. then, you've got, then you have the three different initiatives, and then you go through and you, you lay out quite clearly how they all fit together. And I think we'll come back to that, but why don't we sure. go into Indonesia now? Sounds good. Yeah, and... Yeah, why don't you go, th- do you want to go through, through them? Or yeah, just, uh, sure. Just for a little context, too, one of the really important things to realize about Indonesia is that according to its own um, records, 63% of the country's emissions come from land use change and peat and forest fires. Mm-hmm. Um, so a huge portion of the country's emissions come from the issues that we're writing about in this report related to forest conservation. Um, and in 2014, Indonesia's land use sector emissions represented more than half of the whole world's land use sector emissions. That was because of the fires that they were having, right? Yeah, or? I think the fires were the worst in 2015, but the, they certainly mm-hmm. contributed to that huge trend, right? And something, we maybe talk us a li- tell us a little bit about peat, what it is and why it's such a big deal. Yeah, so peat is basically the accumulation of um, decaying or fallen, no longer living um, plant material, mm-hmm. and it usually accumulates in forests that are kind of based in really wet soils. Um, so many of these peat bogs, as they're often called, are, you know, tens of feet or even much deeper um, and thousands and tens of thousands of years old. Um, and because all this organic material is sitting in water um, in the absence of oxygen, there's not a lot of decomposition happening. So there's a ton of organic material and carbon that's built up mm-hmm. in the soil. And one of the challenges in Indonesia is that um, in order to plant palm oil and other commodities, Oftentimes, um, smallholders and large companies are draining the water from these peat soils. And then over time, that causes them to dry out, um, which makes them decay on their own and then also makes them much more flammable. So you start to get these the potential for huge fires, which are basically happening underground and really difficult to put out, but putting out huge amounts of, ca- of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Okay. And now on the government policies, do you want to just go through them? Yeah, sure. So similar to the Brazil section of the report, we looked at the NDC that Indonesia submitted to the Paris Agreement. 
And we looked at it through the lens of what, uh, what are the ways in which this NDC um, makes commitments relevant to forest conservation and collaborating with the private sector? So we pulled out five basic themes that we thought were really relevant. Um, and the first is that the NDC commits the country to protect and restore forests and peatlands. Um, so pretty straightforward. Uh, the second is that the country wants to take a landscape approach. So um, especially working with the subnational provinces. Um, and, and governments below the federal level to really partner at that scale to make change. And then third, uh, the country wants to utilize multi-stakeholder involvement. So um, not just the government acting on its own, but involving private companies, NGOs, communities. And we thought that was really important given that we're also advocating that companies should be involved. And then fourth, the NDC talks about the importance of spatial planning and land use planning. And that touches on what we've already discussed with the, the mapping kind of discrepancies in the country and um, the importance of having good maps that companies and government can agree on in order mm -hmm. to conserve forests. And then finally, uh, the Indonesia also wants to not only conserve its forests, but also enhance agricultural production while it's conserving its forests. So that kind of makes the challenge even harder. Mm -hmm. If you're going to grow your um, exports of palm oil and other commodities while also protecting forests, um, that's difficult, but as we'll see in some of these um, initiatives, they're finding ways to start making it happen. And one thing, um, I don't remember if you get into this or not, uh, is the land swap, you know about that? Is that still in discussion? Because one, one thing they had talked about, um, and WRI was pushing this, um, they had done a study where they found that there was all this degraded land, and then there were all these concessions, because this was the other issue, there's all these concessions that were already granted on Palm. Like They, they put yes. a moratorium on Palm. Yep, and we'll um, talk about that, right? Okay, and because the, there was a mor moratorium on new Palm concessions, but mm -hmm. there were all these concessions already granted. Mm -hmm. And I think it was WRI had gone in and realized, okay, look, here, here's all these concessions that have been granted. Um, and so these people have legally have the right to go and deforest if they, you know, if they want to. But then they also identified all this land that was degraded, and they were trying to encourage a swap and saying, why don't you, get, instead of having them go in and chop the forest, maybe sweeten this deal somehow by letting them go into the degraded areas and then reclaiming that. Is that, is that Yeah, it? I'm not familiar with that specific example, but that concept is happening throughout the country. Um, in some of these multi-stakeholder initiatives we looked at, one of the main goals is to is to do exactly what you're talking about, to identify where are the areas that are already degraded that have the potential to be planted or intensified in their production so that you could um, boost production and exports but without going into forest areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, just, it's so interesting to see how you can get, if you just manage the land properly, you can get so much out of it. It really hit me in Kenya going to these little farms that were like, just like really unproductive and desolate and uh, there was a group called VI Agroforestry was going in and encouraging the farmers to plant, uh, diversify their crops and plant these trees. And they looked like oases at first. Mm -hmm. And then you go back three years later and everyone's switched over and it's like a whole different landscape. And, and the, the, the clouds respond. The rain comes back. It's like magic. It's pretty incredible. So that is really relevant to one of the sub case studies that we refer to in the cattle agreement section. So there's um, an initiative Which called, one? Which so one it's is called it? a Novo Campo and it's one of the cattle Which page agreements. Is it? Maybe we could, it if you want to. It is wanna... on page 18. Okay. And it's in the, one of the um, pullout boxes. 
And so basically they did just that, right? They um, invested in capacity building and technical mm. assistance. And so once they did that um, on the initial farms that were enlisted, um, they found that they were able to intensify cattle production, increasing stocking rates by 30%, which was a pretty, pretty great stat, um, I thought. Should we jump to the case studies? Yeah, let, let's do that. Let's, um, because there's, I mean, there are so many in, in there. This yeah, thing, I mean, and, and I really want to encourage people to download this and read it. And I would like to get back with you guys and maybe do a, a podcast just on one of these at a time because each one of them is so interesting. Yeah, there's, um, a, there's I, a lot to dig into. Yeah, I was like a deer in the headlights uh, last night. I sat down to try and I'm like, I can't read this whole thing in one sitting. And so I think I'm just going to cop out and okay. throw it to you guys. And you said, you tell me what you want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we'd love that. It is a little dense in places. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe just walking through how we I organize the Indonesian section will be helpful Mm -hmm. so basically the case studies are divided into three sections um, which kind of fit the themes of the report so the first is looking at um, existing and recent government policies which are relevant to forest conservation and then looking at corporate commitments so these no deforestation no peat no exploitation commitments that I mentioned focusing specifically on a few companies and um, understanding what their corporate commitments are and how those relate to government policies and then the last two case studies are really looking at what we call subnational jurisdictional multi-stakeholder partnerships and those are happening in central kalimantan and south sumatra and based on our research it's the best examples of government and companies coming together to each um, advance their own action on um, forest conservation at the subnational level so maybe it's Best to just kind of walk through the different sections and yeah. start with government policies and how that relates to what's going on. So take me to a page. So starting on t- page 24 is where the first case study starts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we basically look at three of the most relevant government policies, one of which you already mentioned, which is the, the palm oil moratorium. But I'll start with the way the report talks about them. So the first is the moratorium on the clearing of primary forests. So these are old, older forests um, and also conversion of peatlands. Um, and this is the basically one of the first attempts that the Indonesian government made um, to use kind of federal policy to protect forests within the last few years. And this, it was a presidential um, instruction originally, and it was issued back in 2011. And it, it's been renewed every two years since then, going into 2019. And it's somehow related to the Norwegian government's... Um, yeah, that, I'm not familiar with all the details of that, but... Um, the timing sounds about right, and I know that Norway, when they committed a billion dollars to Indonesia, or put the money on the table, I should say, really, and said, mm-hmm. Indonesia, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll get some of this money. Policy reforms of this nature were related to that incentive, that financial incentive from Norway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Um, so in some ways, this initial policy from the government set the stage for a lot of these corporate commitments. Um, we see a lot of companies um, offering vocal support for this, for this government policy to conserve forests, and then um, making their own commitments as well on the corporate level. And then more recently, um, both in 2016, um, the, the government issued the palm oil permit moratorium. So this was uh, the president of Indonesia saying back in April of 2016 that we as the federal government are not going to issue any new permits for new palm oil expansion. And this is related, Steve, to what you were saying, that there's already been a lot of palm oil permits issued. And the sense was that there's so much land already allocated that there's no need to give more land. What the real challenge at this point is restructuring these concessions to make sure that production is intensified. So you're getting more palm oil per hectare Mm -hmm. um, and without the need to uh, move into cutting down existing forests. 
So that, that's another really important regulation. We mentioned in the report that the challenge now is making sure it's enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a challenge somewhat unique to Indonesia in that the federal government often has a hard time enforcing regulations at the local level because of the decentralization I talked about. Um, but that's an interesting um, aspect to uh, pay attention to going forward. And similarly, again, a lot of companies were vocally supportive of the palm oil permit moratorium, even mm-hmm. companies that trade in palm oil, mm-hmm. um, partly because of their image, but also because yeah. they understand they can make investments in intensification. We just did a piece on this HSBC thing where the big banking group HSBC asked the RSPL, which you alluded to earlier, the the roundtable on sustainable palm oil, to investigate a company that the bank was loaning money to. And this was after some NGOs said the money was going to go into deforestation. Quick explainer, the HSBC thing I'm alluding to is a pretty big deal, and I'll provide a link to the full story in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 20 at bionic-planet.com. But here's a quick summary. Investors are a critical part of the climate equation, because until they realize that environmental bad boys are also financial bad risks, the most amoral among them will just continue to fund dirty companies. What's more, bad actions only become big risks when someone, a government, a consortium of NGOs, or a union of consumers holds companies accountable for their actions, as Greenpeace did in January when it pointed out that banking giant HSBC was part of a collection of banks lending billions to six companies that were accelerating climate change by turning rainforests into palm oil plantations. What's more, they pointed out that anyone with an internet connection could have figured that out. Here's a quote from their scathing indictment. Even the most basic due diligence on these companies should have set alarm bells ringing, they wrote, which raises the question, is HSBC failing to apply its policies altogether or just failing to apply sufficient scrutiny when assessing whether current or prospective customers comply? To its credit, HSBC came clean and immediately announced a strict new lending policy. Then, in June, Greenpeace and the Environmental Investigation Agency called the company's bluff by sending letters to HSBC and three other banks, namely ABN AMRO, ING, and Rabobank, that were underwriting a major bond for commodities giant Noble Group. Noble Group, the NGO said, was planning to use the money from the loan to chop forests. HSBC responded by formally asking the RSPO to investigate Noble, an act that could cost Noble dearly, as another palm oil bad boy, IOI Group, learned last year when RSPO suspended its sustainability certification. Now, this is a lot to swallow. It's a fascinating and informative sequence of events that warrants an entire episode of Bionic Planet. If I'm throwing too much at you at once, you can learn more about it in the show notes for episode 20 at bionic-planet.com. One of the challenges with these voluntary commitments is that they are in response to consumer pressure. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot more commitments by companies that have consumers in Europe and the U.S., whereas a lot of the, the buyers of these commodities in, in Asia, where there's less price flexibility and less consumer awareness or concern about these issues, some of the voluntary commitments made by the European and American sellers are just kind of 
causing leakage into some of these other markets, yeah, I think, yeah. in some cases, which is a challenge. And that's where the government needs to step in to set minimum standards that everyone has to meet. This is an example of our the motivation of our report is to say, yes, these corporate commitments are important, but they're never going to solve everything on their own. Yeah. So how do they start to inform government policy more effectively? Mm. So then the last example of Indonesian legislation we talk about is the Peatland Restoration Agency. And this was a new agency formed by the government in response to the massive peat fires in Indonesia in late 2015. Um, and basically the mandate of the agency is to look at seven different provinces in Indonesia based on three different islands and reassess existing concessions to make sure that none of them are existing on areas that would be really important um, peat land areas for mm -hmm. carbon management um, and to plan future land use planning to really emphasize the preservation of peatlands with an eye toward carbon sequestration. These exist, are they being enforced properly? Yeah, great question. I think there's a general sense that the federal government is trying to enforce these, but in many cases it is quite challenging. Yeah. So I think everyone would agree there's a lot of progress to be made. And in some cases, the regulations are fairly new, and it's too early to make a, a definitive And there's also the what you touched on before is the decentralization of Indonesia. When, when Yudhoyono was in office and he was putting in the moratorium, I personally didn't realize what a challenge it was for him to enforce that. Yeah, I think when you're coming from a context of a strong federal government, uh, like mm -hmm. the U.S. in some ways has, you just assume they can do whatever they want. But um, yeah, in a country like Indonesia, it is about persuasion in many cases. And that's one of the recommendations we make in the report is that the federal government has to come up with actual incentives yeah. to reward these um, sub these districts to make the good decisions about land use because in many cases it's in their interest financially to allow deforestation and to get revenue from I did an interview a few years back with Heru Prasetyu who is in charge of the country's red readiness uh, you know getting ready for carbon finance and everything and he also headed up the one map initiative that you talked about earlier and he had explained that these regions these Bopatis, I think they're called, these these local leaders, relied on palm oil plantations for things like school funding and, and infrastructure. So if the federal government imposes a logging moratorium, but a palm oil company says, hey, we'll build you a school if you let us chop this little patch of forest, the forest loses. So they really need to educate the Bopatis. And provide incentives because provide that school incentive, yeah. is a real, a need, real yeah. value to them. So you can't just say, no, you can't have that. It mm -hmm. has to be a better value proposition, I mm -hmm. think. Turning back to Brazil and you, Brianna, what governmental changes do you see already underway that give you hope? Yeah, so from a federal government perspective, things are actually a little bit precarious right now. Yeah, so yeah. what I mentioned earlier about subnational governments taking action, I think, is, is becoming more and more evident. And so Acre is like one of the states that's being very proactive in terms of reducing deforestation as is Mato Grosso and Pará. So I think right now there's a lot of effort being made to kind of consolidate these um, strategies and to make it plausible to act mm. reduce deforestation and work with these companies and work with the private sector and uh, private sector engagement in general is coming to the fore as well. So subnational government legislations and, and actions are um, becoming more and more important now. Yeah, and that's something that was also related to the other report that you guys came out with. I'm I'm talking I'm pointing to Brian <laughs> um, on uh, the red finance. You know, the carbon finance in Brazil. It's was this the geography of red finance? No, the one that red just finance? came out today. Oh, the one that just came out today. Yeah, the, yeah the, tracking the, red finance in Brazil. Yeah, and it it was interesting to see how the the federal government is taking the finance, but it's not going to the states, and the states are the ones doing. All the making all the progress exactly and that, yeah so we make the case in that report that states should be getting more of this money if we really want to give them the tools to 
to enact what they can do at the state level. Right, mm -hmm. and then, I mean, presumably in an ideal world, the federal government would take note that these governments on a subnational level are doing effective things and perhaps provide the regulatory framework to institute this on a broader level. Right, so. right. Both countries really have made sacrifices to reduce their emissions. It's, it's easy for us to sit here and say their emissions are going up, 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 mm -hmm. but ours are still a lot higher than theirs are. And this forest code, this idea that the fact that they're saying that they're only allowing 20% of the land to be developed, that's huge. Yeah, it is. And I think it's it comes down to context, right? So if you want to compare like from a biome perspective, right, it's like the Amazon rainforest is incomparable. Like that mm. is just yeah. the epitome of the world's lungs. <laughs> yeah. And Brazil does deserve a lot of credit for what they've achieved yeah. over the last decade or so. I mean, the last year or two years, there are some reverses in those gains that are happening that need to be addressed. But yeah, and I think I think in um, Mato Grosso, which is one of the Amazonian states, so there's a, a stat in here um, that shows that deforestation um, in Mato Grosso has actually decreased, while deforestation in Brazil as a whole has increased. And it's not directly attributable to the PCI, so the Produce, Conserve, Include initiative, mm -hmm. but I think it's definitely like in the mix. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, I think like what Brian said about, about Brazil making sacrifices is like, it's very true. Yeah. Okay. yeah, maybe before we get to recommendations, I can highlight one kind of case study of the, the multi-stakeholder partnerships that involve yeah. companies. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so in the report, I highlight um, what a few companies are doing, Wilmar, Asia Pulp and Paper, and Unilever. But one of the most interesting initiatives that we identified in our research is happening in central Kalimantan. And this is one of the provinces of the country that produces the most palm oil. Um, and there's an initiative here that w really took off um, with an announcement at the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. And the governor of the province came out and said, we're, we are going to set a goal that by 2019, we're going to certify all production of palm oil in central Kalimantan, which is a really ambitious goal. And in order to accomplish that or to work toward that, they created this uh, what they call a jurisdictional certification working group. Mm -hmm. um, and that involves government officials from all different levels. Um, some of the really key uh, palm oil producers and buyers, some NGOs. And w one interesting aspect of this initiative is that uh, there's an Indonesian NGO called the Earth Innovation Research Institute. Is That's, that uh, Dan Nepstead's group? Yeah, okay. it's kind of a, a partner organization to, the, mm -hmm. to EI, what many know as EII in mm -hmm. the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and they've played a really key role in kind of being a bridging organization um, in helping to bring... Um, governments and corporations to the table and to facilitate conversation because one of the findings of this report is in many ways you need a third organization with a different mandate to take on that role mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay um, and unilever has been really active in this initiative they've committed to investing in um, smallholder intensification of palm oil production which is one of the major challenges which is again helping the small farms become more productive yes which, yeah by providing better uh, seed varieties, more better fertilizer, better access to finance. When a company has to buy from a hundred or a thousand different little small farmers, trying to certify each one of them individually is just impossible. Yes. And I know that Unilever was working with a few other companies to say, okay, we're going to make sure that this whole little state or this little district in a state in, in Indonesia is sustainable and that we can trust anything that comes out of it. Yeah, that's part of this broader global effort. Mm -hmm. So in Paris, uh, Unilever and uh, Marks, and Spencer. Marks and Spencer came out with this commitment to what they call preferentially source some of their key commodities from jurisdictions that, like you're talking about, Steve, that are committed to 
um, reducing deforestation as a whole at the jurisdictional level. So part of Unilever's strategy to accomplish its own goal in that regard is to invest in central Kalimantan's process so that eventually the jurisdiction as a whole can be certified and then Unilever can be very assured that the supply it's getting in palm oil from there is is sustainable. And there's similar efforts underway in Brazil, right? I mean, that, that's what this Green Municipalities initiative was meant to be, right? Yeah, so we didn't get into the Green Municipalities program, so I'm sorry I couldn't really comment on it on earlier, okay. but that's a, another initiative based in Bara. But So similarly, a lot of the um, initiatives that we've touched on in the report um, do involve a lot of upfront financing just mm-hmm. because... So not necessarily certification, but for example, compliance with the car, like I mentioned earlier, it's registering and being recognized as a legal operator requires a lot of um, upfront costs. And mm-hmm. so I'm looking at an example for the um, Sustainable Trade Initiative. So IDH it's providing a lot of financing to minimize these costs to provide financial incentives for greater involvement. Yeah, and IDH is an interesting organization. Um, it's sort of a Dutch public-private collaborative, as I understand it. And they're doing work in Indonesia, too, mm-hmm. all around the idea of generating private finance for these investments in sustainable um, commodity production. Maybe we can segue into the, the recommendations that uh, that you've got. If there's a, Is there a, a theme that you might want to go, uh, kind yeah, of, that kind of emerges through all of these? Well, the way we structured it is we kind of have separate recommendations for each country and then overall umbrella recommendations. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you want to get like top two or three from each country and then... Why don't we start with the, the umbrella? Because I think yeah, that okay. might be interesting and more yeah. applicable and then we can do the top two, two or three for each country. Because there is a lot here. Yeah, there there are a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, we the way we divided it, we divided the recommendations, the umbrella recommendations, um, in terms of the recommendations we for companies and then for governments. And so for companies, it basically came down to three things, and these were like Brian said, um, gathered through our individual recommendations for the countries. So the first one, just advocating for policies that support deforestation-free goals, right? So this is on a subnational or interna- or national level, sorry, and just being really involved in those discussions from the get-go. So like the Brazilian coalition platform, and I'm sure there are other um, platforms in Indonesia that try to do the same thing. Also participating in multi-stakeholder initiatives, right? So um, related to it, um, I mentioned. And then just supporting efforts to strengthen and enforce regulations. So it's a kind of a two-way street, right? So if the government is providing the regulations and the enforcement backing that the companies need to implement their um, commitments, then by the same token, companies should be doing what they can to uphold the pre-existing legislations and kind of increase that ambition to show mm-hmm. the government's that it's okay. Like, if you do your part, we'll do ours. And in many cases, these companies have a lot of political clout in these countries. Yeah. So they can they can be a, a really important player on either side of the equation. They can really stymie government right. progress, or they can be champions to say, hey, we got your back. Even if this is politically difficult for you domestically, we're going to be behind you and say that as a company, we want you to make some of these um, regulatory changes that maybe force us as a company to conserve force or, you know, reward us and raise the bar so that our competitors also have to do that. Yeah, you know, one of, one of the interesting things that I've found as well is looking at the com- companies that have a long-term perspective, they actually get it because they know they're going to, like Mars, for example, it's family-owned. The fam- They're never going to sell that company, and they're totally committed to these small farmers. And they don't pretend that they're doing it out of purely humanitarian reasons. They're just like, man, we, we depend on these guys. We need them. And I think a publicly owned company is a little bit different because the you know shareholders can sell their stocks after a couple of years. Yeah, That's, there may be more incentive for short term thinking. And on the other hand, you do have companies. If a company is doing the right thing, it wants an even playing field. It doesn't want to be penalized for that. So. That's why. Yeah, an interesting example of that. This is kind of off topic, but that's 
sort of how the Lacey Act in the U.S. got amended right. in 2008. You may remember the Lacey Act from a few years back when federal prosecutors caught Gibson Guitar Corporation smuggling in ebony from Madagascar and rosewood from India. The company whined and cried before admitting guilt and paying a small fine. The act has been on the books for over 100 years. It was introduced by Iowa Republican John Lacey back in the days when conservatives believed in conservation and signed into law by President William McKinley in 1900. It originally focused on helping U.S. states protect their native game animals, but it was amended over the years to respect other countries' environmental laws as well. It was last amended in 2008, as Brian explains. Some of the environmental NGOs got together with the more progressive timber companies and said, you're, you're trying to act responsibly and source your timber well, but you're being undercut in the market by these companies that aren't acting very responsibly. So why don't you join with us and we'll, we'll kind of be a biz, responsible business environmental coalition and go to Congress and say, we, want, we all want these laws. And that was really what enabled it to happen uh, because Congress never would have passed that amendment if there hadn't been business support for it. And I think that's similarly analogous for these commodities in these countries as well. You need to have companies advocating um, for these policies as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you think are the most impactful recommendations that you would have? Because you've got, like, just in Indonesia, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You've got ten recommendations on Indonesia. Yeah, which in the Indonesia section, which I kind of tried to organize them by importance, I think, somewhat. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can just start with the first few. Um, one of the things we covered is that there's a really important uh, kind of, it's, on the one hand, it's a small legal issue, but it has important implications. Um, the government has this law in the books called the Plantation Act that requires... Um, concession holders to develop their concessions within Similar six years. Similar to Brazil had the same thing, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, it forces them to develop it within six years of getting the concession, and they can be penalized and have their concession revoked if they don't do that. Right. Um, but this makes it really difficult for a company that wants to conserve forests on their concessions. So there's a regulation pending. The government has to define what environmental damage constitutes. Um, to ensure that that doesn't occur, because that is part of the law, that that can't happen. Mm-hmm. So one of the recommendations we make is fairly straightforward, that the government should issue that pending regulation to say that developing palm oil on what could be classified a high conservation value or high carbon stock forest, that would constitute environmental damage, and therefore you can't do that. And right, right. now, that, that would transition the, the law from being kind of a hindrance to help mm-hmm. in this regard. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us uh, your 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 Brazilian highlights? <laughs> um, sure. So, I think sorry for the initial recommendations that I provided. Those are the umbrella ones that we alluded mm-hmm. to at the end of right. the report. Sorry about that. So Brazil specific because the car is so present in Mm -hmm. Brazil, Um, I think just providing total transparency for the registration process for what's required and Mm -hmm. also 
the same token, um, providing investments to make sure that this is actually a viable tool, right, mm -hmm. to um, reduce illegal deforestation. And so that requires both government backing and company involvement and support. So that was one. And then honestly, just dialogue, opening up dialogue and providing those those um, channels of dialogue. So mm -hmm. whether it be a multi-stakeholder consortium or meetings between companies and subnational governments, I think that's also really important. And then it's just providing incentives, which we've talked about a lot before. Um, so providing incentives to these suppliers to engage um, in sustainable sourcing practices and production practices mm -hmm. um, is a really big, big one. And one thing we found, so Brianna was referencing the importance of dialogue and having the government create mm -hmm. spaces for the private sector to give input. Um, one thing we found in, our, in researching for the report is that really the best place that this is happening and sort of can happen logically is is at the sub-federal level, so at the, at the province level, where there's more ability for the government to reach out to individual corporations and have these sort of roundtables. A lot of these federal goals, like in the NDCs and regulations, are, are really going to take hold at the subnational level, and we're, we're starting to see that um, mm -hmm. through our case studies. Okay. How optimistic are you that these recommendations will get taken up, and what can people do to motivate this stuff to move forward? Yeah, I think the way we structure the report, it's it's biased in the optimistic perspective. I mean, we're selecting mm -hmm. for good examples. Right. Um, so we're, we are trying to highlight um, the best of what's going on and what could continue to happen, while also realizing, you know, there are a lot of challenges and corporations do have a lot of progress to make. And their consumers should hold their feet to the fire. I think one of the lessons we can learn from recent action is that corporate pressure, often filtered through environmental NGOs, really does influence these companies' mm -hmm. decisions. And that's been really strong in the Western world or the, the, the developed world. And that's starting to take hold more in developing economies as well. So I don't know if you know too much about the We Are Still In campaign. So in the United States, a group of companies and um, state government so state governors signed on oh, to yeah, this yeah, letter. Of course, yeah, 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 and cities Bloomberg signed on thing, to this. Yeah. So I think that that's like a very strong message that companies, in addition to different entities, are starting to realize that hey, we do have power and we can do something about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that this report kind of is just like a, another step in that direction um, mm. to just capitalize on these cooperations and these synergies that can happen. That kind of provide momentum. Another aspect to remember is that uh, corporations that do act responsibly, and I think you said this, Steve, are, will be rewarded, I think, in the long term mm -hmm. um, with you know, more stability in their business model, more secure supply chains, and you know, better prices for their shareholders. I, I read a news article recently in the Financial Times about, I think it was maybe Warren, some group Warren Buffett was involved in, was going to buy out Unilever uh, for some... Uh, some amount of value, and and the Unilever um, CEO Paul Pullman said, "No, you vastly." It was Kraft, I think. Okay, Kraft wanted to buy them. I think Buffett wasn't. Yeah, was and, he involved in that too? I don't okay. know exactly. Anyway, some group was going to buy out Unilever, and Unilever said, "No way, you mm. vastly undervalued the value of our company." And I, when I read the article, I was in the midst of writing this report, and I thought, you know, I wonder if part of what he's saying is we are making these long-term investments. Yeah in our supply chain and sustainability to align with the way the world is going. You can't measure that right now, just based on the, our, you know, our assets or our uh, market share. Yeah. But in the long term, this is going to be good for our business. And Paul Pullman is one of those guys, uh, just you know, thinks, I've mentioned him many times because he's, he is a CEO who really stared down his shareholders uh, and said, we're not, we're, we, you know, we're going to make sustainability part of our business plan. Mm -hmm. And, when he did that in 2009 or whatever, the share prices plunged at first. But he also had some good uh, activist shareholders who stuck by him. Yeah, and and he was able to kind of move forward. And they've been they've been a really good actor. 
Yeah, and I think to add to what Brian was saying about long uh, smart long-term investments is just from a reputational standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Like you as a company value how your co- your um, consumers perceive you. And it's like, if you take the initiative, you're going to be rewarded. There's so much in this thing. And I, we can go on and on and on. And I really would like to come back to you guys individually mm-hmm. and go through some of these things and just do a deep dive into some of these case studies that you did because each one of them is worth doing something on its own. Yeah, that'd be great. But is there anything I didn't ask and should have some big point that you think is really important that we need to leave people with? I think one thing I'd finish with is just to say that we think the topic of this report is really important and we're probably just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, Both kind of realms of action, uh, government action and corporate uh, responsibility to reduce deforestation, both are huge in their own right and really important. And um, we're beginning to explore those connections in two key countries, but there's really a lot more work to be done on this topic. And I hope to see other organizations writing reports and we hope to go deeper and continue asking these sorts of questions. But um, it's a really important area and we think we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to emphasize that it was meant to be pretty high level. And um, so it would be great to discuss these initiatives in further detail because they're really great um, and have a lot of things that other countries and other initiatives can learn from. So I think um, it is important to continue pursuing the, the topic we chose. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Brian Skop and Brianna Lujan wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. Now, I've been shuffling episodes around a bit, but next week I'll finally get you that interview with impact investors Richard Frenopfel and Noel Claire Lacan, who are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into sustainable agriculture. I conducted that interview over two months ago, but have just been too busy to get it finalized. These podcasts do take time, and if you like to hear more of them, you can give me some positive energy in the form of a good rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access my show. Or you can share Bionic Planet with friends or the ultimate support. Become a patron at bionic-planet.com. Because I depend on you to get these out, and I've set the patronage page so that you can help per episode but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode, or 10 or 50 or whatever. I promise not to complain. And that wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.